Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Tim Banal. Welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 1. This week, we talk to Greg Bishop. He's the author of Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, national security, and the creation of a modern UFO myth. For those of you who aren't familiar with the book, it's an examination of the story of Paul Benowitz, who was a UFO investigator who thought he'd stumbled upon a UFO outbreak, if you will, at Kirtland Air Force Base, tried to contact the Air Force there, and eventually fell under the influence of government disinformation agents. It's a fascinating story. It's a human interest story. And uh, it's one of the most talked about UFO books of 2005, so I was very excited to get Greg Bishop on the show to talk about it. This is part one of two. It was a lengthy interview. It lasted uh, over the course of two days, so there's a slight bit of continuity issues here in the interview a little bit, but hopefully you won't even notice it, but I wanted to point it out. The interview was recorded on August 23rd and 24th, and here's a little bit about Greg Bishop outside of his authoring of Project Beta. He's also the editor and publisher of The Excluded Middle. That's a journal dealing in various aspects of esoterica. And he's also the host of Radio Mysterioso, that is an online esoteric radio show. His website is www.excludedmiddle.com, E-X-C-L-U-D-E-D-M-I-D-D-L-E.com. So he's knowledgeable in many aspects of the world of esoterica and much of the stuff we cover on banalofamerica.com. So he's perfect for Banal of America Audio Season 1. So let's rock and roll. Greg Bishop on Banal of America. Ladies and gentlemen of Banal of America Audio, I'm pleased to announce we have a very special guest this week. He's the author of Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, national security and the creation of a modern UFO myth. And he also publishes and edits The Excluded Middle. It's a journal on UFOs, conspiracy research, psychedelia, and new science. And you can find that at www.excludedmiddle.com. He's Greg Bishop. Greg, thanks for giving me the time to talk uh, and give the message out to the people at banalofamerica.com. No problem. Sounds like it's going to be great. Let's go. All right, let's do it. Um, now, you've been in the UFO field for a while, so what? eventually you must decide you're going to write a book. What made you decide to write the book about this Paul Benowitz case? Well, the short answer was that um, Simon & Schuster said yes to that proposal. The long answer is I'd known Bill Moore since the late 80s, in fact, about a year before he made that, that incredible announcement at the uh, MUFON convention there in 89. And um, since he would talk to me, you know, privately about the case and what was going on, that was one of the proposals I sent out, uh, you know, amongst four or five, and through Patrick Wage, who runs um, uh, a Paraview Press, um, he got that to Simon & Schuster through his deal, and that, that was one of the projects they said yes to, and I was happy because that's one of the main ones I really wanted to write about. And how did you go about investigating? You, says you're, you say you're friends with... Uh with Bill Moore, so did you get a lot of the stuff from him and do you interview Moore? Got a lot of, yeah, I got a lot of stuff from Bill at first. Actually, throughout the course of the um, writing the book, he lives about two miles from me, so we'd just go out to lunch. Huh. And he would, you know, I'd say, hey, I'm at this stumbling block or whatever, can you give me any direction? And he said, well, why don't you call this person and this person? 
Oh. And you know, he kind of smoothed the path with me for people that uh, he knew that were involved with the story, like Rick Doty and um, a few other people. And th these are people both inside and outside the government, which is why I thought, um, you know, I wouldn't be taken for a ride because I could check, you know, from some, you know, Richard Doty would tell me, um, we did this at this point and Paul went to this place. So I'd go to Gabe Valdez or somebody that I knew that knew him or had met him and said, you know, without leading them too much, would say, you know, did you ever hear about Paul Benowitz talking about X? You know, uh, going out to this place and looking for whatever. Oh, yeah, he told me he went out there and, so, and then he showed me the pictures and, you know, and if I could get that kind of confirmation or some kind of document or newspaper article or something like that that was um, separate from what supposedly a military intelligence insider would tell me, then I would feel fairly confident to put that in the book. All right, and throughout the book, it seems like Benowitz, he's, he's going more and more crazy. Um, the people in ufology at the time, when did they realize that Benowitz was going down a wrong path? Well, it depends. You know what? It really depended at the time. If you're talking about in the from the early 80s to the late 80s, it depended on what their 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 preset uh, what what their expectations were. Now, if somebody was really interested in the sensationalistic aspects of the story, like there was an underground base at Dulcie, there was an agreement with the aliens to abduct people in exchange for technology, people like um, uh, uh, Bill Lear, or no, John Lear and um, Bill Cooper, Bill Cooper, people like that, Bill English, a lot of Bills. Um, they would they would kind of believe it without hesitation because that's what they wanted to hear and that's what they wanted to say in their lectures. But then there were other people like like Bill Moore and like Stanton Friedman and who would kind of step back and say, well, you know, what is is there any other confirmation for this kind of for these kinds of stories? And um, they tended to believe that, uh, especially Bill, because he knew what was going on. Bill Moore. Um, they, they tended to think that he didn't really have too good of a uh, um, filter on about what he would believe and what he wouldn't. So really, like I said, it really depended on what the people wanted to get out of him. He was kind of like a Rorschach blot for the, for the ufologists at that point. And uh, one faction went off and dealt with the weird story, and the other, the other faction kind of took, you know, uh, were a little bit more circumspect and just waited to hear if he said something that they could check out and sounded like it might have some validity to it. And that that's almost how it remains, although I find that people are a little less polarized about Benowitz right now because of the because of the passage of time. I mean, this was, what, uh, 25, almost uh, more than 25 years ago. All right. Um, based on the story presented in the book and Doty's interaction with Benowitz, how he was feeding all these stories and sort of led his, his uh, evolution of his theory, and your own investigation, do you think there's little credence to the popular concepts? Um, and I have three listed here. Um, let's just start with MJ-12. Do you think there's any, the classic MJ-12 of ufology, do you think there's any credence to that, or do you think it's pretty flimsy? Uh, depends who you talk to. I personally, I personally believe, from what I've seen, that the case for an actual group called MJ-12 is pretty good. The uh, case for that it had to do with UFOs covering them up and creating a story to tell to the public, I think the evidence for that is not so good. 
Now, if you talk to Bob Wood, Bob and Ryan Wood, or um, of course Stanton Friedman, they would tell you differently, and they might be able to cite much better sources than I have for their views. Um, but then you've talked to Bill Moore, who was essentially the first person to see these things, him and Jamie Chandray in 86, I believe, 1986, when it was mailed to Jamie's house. Um, Bill, for his part, uh, would probably be the same opinion as I was from what he has seen, is that it's probably a hoax, but a pretty good one based on a group that actually did exist. Yeah. It does not exist now. That's as much as I can say on it. I'm, oh yeah, I'm not. A, I'm not going to pound the podium and say. I mean, that's why my magazine is called Excluded Middle. I'm, I'm going to reserve judgment until I see something that 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 unequivocally tells me that uh, there's good good evidence for one or the other side. And for like I, like I said, I'm kind of leaning towards the, you know, it existed, but if it had anything to do with UFOs. I'm not certain of that. And that that actually was something that Benowitz was. He never really promulgated that theory because the stuff wasn't mailed to him and he wasn't really interested in that. He was so interested in what was going on in New Mexico and his view of things and what he had found and what he had been shown and led to, he didn't really care too much about this MJ-12 thing. And that, that was direct fallout from the, the, getting those documents was direct fallout from Bill more cooperating with uh, these sources of the, in the Air Force Office of Special Intelligence and the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, that was his part of the deal. He, he kept tabs on people and, and reported what their, what their beliefs and findings were to whoever he had to. And in return, he got these UFO documents. He got lots of them, the Carter Briefing document, which people have probably heard about, and the Aquarius document, which he actually showed to Paul Benowitz and told him to take it with a grain of salt, which he actually did. In fact, researchers have told me that Paul never said, look, here's something that proves that, that the government knows what I'm doing and supports it. But he would say it, but he wouldn't use the document to back it up, which is kind of strange, which either means he thought it was false or he took Bill's advice or a little of both. Now, was he... Oh, that, that leads me to a side question here. That does he... When he... Was he suspicious of information he got, or was he pretty gullible to whatever they gave him? You know, from everybody I've talked to on both sides, of the, when I say both sides, I mean the insider intelligence side and the ufologist, you know, basic general uh, citizen, you know, U.S. private citizen side, um, he was pretty gullible, and he would believe anything that propped up what he thought was going on and disbelieve things that... Uh, would ignore things that uh, tended to show that he was going down the wrong path. So he put his beliefs before the before the evidence consistently. All right, and then uh, another one of these things I was asking about that might have a little treatise uh, in light of all the research you've done and what we find out nowadays is uh, the Dulce, Dulce underground bases. Dulce. Yeah, Dulce, Dulce, however yeah. you want to pronounce it. Uh, well, that was that's kind of a long story. It's gone into in detail in the book. But yeah, yeah. The short version of that, as short as I can make it, is Paul Benowitz began to believe that there was an underground base in New Mexico. The reason he thought this is because he, very early on, in 1979, 80 uh, time frame, he, uh, this woman was brought to his attention who said she had been abducted. And this was really early in the abduction, you know, 
there wasn't even an abduction craze yet. Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time, hadn't even come out yet. She thought she had been taken to some underground base. And for reasons that I was not able to figure out, um, because Benowitz was dead, or he died right while I was writing the book. My first visit to New Mexico, he, he had died like two weeks before. Oh, man. Yeah, I had to hear this from his son, who basically told me to get out of his office. Now, do you think Benowitz would have talked to you if he was alive? Oh, no, no. He was he was very sick and extreme. You know, he was old and very sick. I think he was 75 or 76, but he had been ill for, for probably a decade off and on. Oh, wow. Anyway, um, he thought there was this base there based on what this woman, Myrna Hansen, had, had told him in, in uh, regressions, which were first done with Leo Sprinkle until he got he kind of got wary of Paul and his and his uh, putting his emotions and his beliefs before the evidence uh, attitude. Um, and uh, when the Air Force heard that he had this strong belief there was an underground base, in order to keep him his nose pointed away from Kirtland Air Force Base, where there actually were secret uh, projects going on, they encouraged him in this direction and actually went to the trouble of getting him on a helicopter and flying him up to Dulce, New Mexico, over the Archuleta Mesa, where they had put props up. Now, a couple people have said, you know, you just believe Richard Doty when he told you that. And I said, no, uh, Gabe Valdez told me the same thing. Paul had told him that. So I've got confirmation from somebody who has no interest whatsoever in covering up national secrets. And in fact, it's against it. Um, they took him up there and flew him over and showed him these little props they'd left up there. They were up high enough so you couldn't quite exactly tell what they were, but, you know, they were little tanks, uh, fuel tanks and jeeps that were broken down. They just airlifted them up there. And apparently they'd also put, um, like, pipes sticking out of the ground and stuff, but I've never been able to confirm that. Uh, but as time went on, more and more people glommed onto this story, and I have yet to find anybody that actually saw anything there that looked like a base. Um, and besides Paul Benowitz and a few scattered people that swear there was something there, even though they've never been there, which is kind of amazing. I've had people swear to me, yes, there is a base there. Well, how do you know? And he says, well, I, I have good sources. I, Did you ever go there and look? <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't. I, but my sources I trust. I said, well, if you trust your sources, what did they find? Well, they found these, you know, uh, ducts, these pipes sticking out of the ground. And I said, well, did they go up to them and find out, you know, see if they were just pipes sticking up, or were they buried very well in the ground? Was there air coming in or out of these pipes or ducts? That's, you could figure that was what would be going on. Well, I don't know. I said, well, okay. Well, it, you have your beliefs, and I'm not going to try and... Obviously, you, you believe this without actually seeing it yourself to the point where one guy said, I'd stake my life on it, even though he'd never been there. Wow. So I... I it's very weird when you get into this area with people, and I don't want to, you know, say, well, you're full of crap and you're insane. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think they are. I just think they want to believe that there's something there, and they've got enough people that they trust telling them so many different things, and this is one of them, that it fits in with whatever scenario that they've they've uh, been able to uncover. Um, so I, I, I don't know what to say to these people, except that it's, there's very little evidence to me. And no, I didn't go up there. That's what they asked me to. Well, did you go up? I said, well, if there's nothing there, what different? Why should I go up there looking for it? It's a waste of time. Yeah. The onus is on you if you think there's something. Is there is something there to find it? Prove it to me and other people. So 
it, it's it's uh, it gets very crazy sometimes. But yeah, I'm 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 pretty much convinced that that was made up. It, there were so many things they did to to reinforce that. They even asked the uh, Army Special Forces to go up there and start re, um, reinstituting their uh, training in the Air Delta Force training in the area so the people around uh, Dulce, New Mexico and the Mesa up there saw all these helicopters flying around with and all these maneuvers and people, you know, jumping out of helicopters and, um, you know, buzzing their farms and all this other stuff. So they, they truly believe there's something very important going on up there, but nobody's ever been able to find evidence of it except for, you know, like, like I said, these helicopters there and possibly something sticking out of the ground. So that whole Dulce story, that all dates back pretty much to Benowitz, right? No one was yeah. talking about underground bases in Dulce before Benowitz. No, that's it's it directly that is the origin of that story was Paul Benowitz and and his idea that there was something there, and then of course the Air Force reinforcing that through through uh, lies and deceit. And so you spent a lot of time with uh, Bill Moore, and this is the third one of the of the concepts I wanted to ask you about. When I was Roswell. Um, you know, what do you think about that? He, obviously, you must you must have heard a lot about it from Bill, and um, I don't know what what do you think is there credence to the Roswell story? Well, I don't know. Did you read Nick Redfern's new book? <laughs> Not yet, but I have actually. I've I've listened to the thing, and you know, done as much investigation of it as I can. There's only so many books I can read. Yeah, there's only so many things books I can read, things I can cover, and places I can go personally, just yeah. like you. But I don't know. I'm kind of up in the air on that too. I, I tend to believe that if there was uh, that that there's so much evidence there that something very strange did happen. Uh, now, if it's you know deformed Japanese midgets in test gliders, like Nick says, that 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 sort of fits with what went on, and it would explain a lot of the uh, cover-up because it was, it was a whole you know it was yeah. uh, not even borderline uh, uh, um, morally wrong. It just was wrong. Um, you can put it down to you know post-war jitters and you know, fighting the commies and all that. It, it seems to make sense to me. Now I haven't done the research and I don't know how you know I don't know his sources. I don't know if they know each other. As Carl Flock has said, Carl actually is very much uh, against uh, Nick's book, which is very strange since he wrote that book uh, about the mogul balloons. Oh yeah. Huh. Um, he just sent out an email saying that he 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 thinks Nick's sources are are uh, are disingenuous. They're somehow colluding to to fool him. But as far as Nick is concerned, most of these people, in fact, all of the people he talked to, his main witnesses, as far as he could tell, had no knowledge knowledge of each other. Um, I don't know how far up the chain he can go to check that out, and how long ago he can, you know, how long ago on the records he can check that out. But he was fairly convinced that that was so. Um, uh, very intelligent people have been fooled by by far less, though. So I don't know. As for Bill's part, um, he's. I told him what Nick's book was about, and he pretty much poo-pooed it. He still thinks that something. I think he's fairly convinced that something. Strange and possibly extraterrestrial crashed in Roswell in 1947. And, uh, and he uh, he started investigating Roswell before he got involved with the government, to the best of your knowledge. Oh yeah, he did. In fact, that's why, how he came to the attention of the government because okay. he read his book. Um, he was at a radio station doing interviews for um, uh, the Roswell incident, which came out in 1979. It's the first book on the Roswell incident that that was ever 
written it and brought brought all this to national attention at the at the time. He was at an interview in uh, in uh, in Albuquerque, and he'd already gotten one phone call from somebody saying, "We think you're the only person we've heard of that knows what they're talking about." You know, they were flattering his his uh, uh, ego. And then the second time this happened, he was in Albuquerque, and he was able to go meet with somebody, and it turned out to be this Falcon character that I talk about in the book. Him and Richard Doty met with him for the first time in, in uh, 1980, I believe, in Albuquerque when he was doing a radio interview for the, for the Roswell incident. And that's how that um, uh, relationship uh, started. And it was directly, as I said, a direct result of him writing the Roswell incident and being on the uh, board of directors for APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which is now defunct, but for many years was run out of Tucson, Arizona, by Coral and Jim Lorenzen, who actually play a part in the book, too. Actually, then let me jump to that question, because I was going to ask you about APRO, because nowadays people only hear about MUFON. Uh, I was fortunate enough to hear Walt Andrus at this past uh, X conference. He gave a fascinating uh, sort of history of UFO organizations. But it sounds like you uh, did a lot of research, and you were probably right in the thick of it with APRO. Um, Tell me a little bit about APRO, because probably a lot of people haven't heard of it because it's starting to fade from the memory of uh, ufology. I believe APRO actually split off from the Mutual UFO Network when it was the Midwest UFO Network. And Coral Lorenzen and, and his and her uh, husband Jim moved to Tucson and started their own uh, organization, which they thought would be a little bit more scientific and more, you know, grounded uh in their research, uh, I think they began this in the mid-50s, I believe, and then they both put out many, many books about the, all the cases they'd worked on. They're great books. Uh, UFO Occupants was a good one. Um, many they, they broke the V.S. Boas case for the first time. They were kind of nervous about it because it was a weird thing, a guy having sex with an alien woman. <laughs> they, they were really nervous apparently about putting this out, but they did, and um, that was it was one of the first abduction cases on, on record that was actually investigated. Uh, psychologists and doctors came into the picture, and this was spearheaded by APRO. And by the, uh, by the late 70s, um, they had asked Bill Moore to be on their board of directors, and uh, he was moving from uh, Michigan. I think he was teaching at the time, and uh, or no, Minnesota, I'm sorry. And uh, they asked him to be on the board based, basically based on, on the, the research he had done on the Roswell incident. And so he joined their board. He lived in, um, uh, oh, what's the name of the town? Prescott, Prescott, Arizona, which is uh, about, I don't know, something like a two, three-hour drive from uh, Tucson. Um, strangely enough, uh, <laughs> George Hunt Williamson also lived in Prescott for quite a long time. Uh, one of the early contactees, and Bill knew a lot about him, too. Huh. Anyway, he, he got on the board there, and the, 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 when the Air Force was basically out there fishing for people in the UFO community to, uh, to uh, use as contacts, um, Bill was one of the people that got one of their letters um, that they had, they had concocted to try and see who would be receptive to such a thing, to, to uh, cooperating with them. That was the that was the Weitzel letter that was supposedly sent from Albuquerque in 
1980 or 81, oh, okay. I believe, um, about, it was some, you know, junior airman that had seen a UFO and then yep. seen a, seen some sort of landing and taken a picture and then in the letter he said that some man in black came later and told him to shut up about it and Bill actually called the guy up and he said, uh, no, I saw something but I didn't take any pictures and nobody came and told me to shut up so Bill knew immediately it was a hoax. It was just sent to APRO. The same letter was sent to many different people. APRO got this letter and Bill actually checked up on it. I think he was one of the only people that did, which is why he got the attention of the Air Force because they wanted somebody who was careful about what they did, strangely enough. <laughs> now, in APRO, uh, when they closed down, isn't there like a story about how their their records are uh, like... Oh, yeah, we got off the track. Yeah, a couple of people, I mentioned their names in the book, but I can't remember them, but some people that have been helping around the office took the records, put them, all the APRO files, put them in a garage, some storage space garage or somewhere in Tucson and told everybody they couldn't have any access to them. What's that all about? I think they were just, they were just, they've got some kind of problem where they think they own the information, I suppose. I'm sure Coral and Jim Lorenzen are spinning in their graves when they heard about that. <laughs> I bet, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know right. what happened to those records, if they've been released or what, but it was this couple. I don't know if they were married. You know, they had some sort of relationship, but they had been helping the Lorenzens, you know, kind of at the end there in the in the mid-'90s, I believe, because they died within a few months of each other, uh, the, the Coral and Jim. Um, and I don't know what's happened to those records and if anybody's gotten them yet. I don't think so, because uh, I'm pretty sure that was one of the most interesting parts of what I heard Wally Andrews say, because I remembered it when I read your book, too. You mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, the fact uh, he didn't, I think he said MUFON tried to buy them at one point, and they they weren't they wouldn't sell them or anything. Yeah, I, I don't know what their problem is, but they're not and they're not doing anything with the records. That's the really strange part. Yeah. You know, that... The, the, Something that's happened in ufology in the last few years, which I think is really interesting, is going into old cases and mining, massaging and mining the data to see if anything interesting comes up. And in a few cases, it has. That Rex Heflin picture from, uh, from Santa Ana from the uh, late 50s, I think it was, there was a whole article on that in the, article, in the Journal of Scientific Exploration by uh, um, Ann Druffel and two or three other authors where they... They, some somebody delivered the uh, original prints back to Rex Heflin, who was still alive. Somebody called him up one day and said, "Go look in your mailbox." Or have you looked in your mailbox lately? And he said, "Huh? What? Who's this?" And the person hung up, and he looked in his mailbox. There's nothing there. But then, actually, about an hour later, he looked, and his original pictures the Air Force had taken from him in 1958 or whatever it was were in his mailbox. So they were able. Wow. To first-generation pictures, subject them to computer analysis, and, uh, in fact, uh, determine that they were real pictures of something of the size and shape and movement that Heflin said they were, in spite of the fact that other people have uh, said that they were faked, um, based on shadows, the time of day, what the air, what the, uh, what, what, how much moisture was in the air at the time. And the fact that there were pictures of the thing taking off later and left this huge, like, donut-shaped cloud of smoke as it took off. And there was a picture of the, the donut cloud of smoke as this object took off. There was just a picture of the smoke ring in the air. Huh. And it, it was quite interesting. It supported what he said because people were saying, well, he said it did all these things. It was, it was trailing a cloud of smoke, and suddenly it, it, it just took off at high speed and left this, this torus-shaped ring of smoke uh, in the air, and he had a picture of it, and, and actually it had to be enhanced, computer enhanced, 
to the point where you actually see it, because you can sort of see it in the picture, but you can see it really clearly after they enhanced it. And why would he go to the trouble of hoaxing all this and then hoaxing a smoke ring in the air? You can do that, yeah. at least not at the time. Yeah. So that's very interesting. So that's why it's kind of, you know, it's kind of tragic that these records are, are there's probably all kinds of gems in there. Oh, yeah. About, uh, that can be used now with, the, you know, hindsight, technology, um, uh, more experience to, to, to find out what, which of these cases were genuine and possibly would point to some sort of answer or origin. You know, I don't know, but uh, I, I think that's a really valuable area of research is just looking at these old cases. Well, one of the more interesting parts of the of the book, sort of in the mystical sense, was these orbs in uh, Venowitz's house. Because it was probably one of the few things that didn't get explained away yeah. um, in the book. What's the story with these orbs? I don't know where they came from, and I don't know who made them or what they were, but... Um, the first I heard about this was I was interviewing Bill, uh, really interviewing, we just basically sat down for lunch and would yak. Um, I, and I think I brought that up. Is there anything just weird about the case that just, you know, you couldn't explain? He goes, well, there were a few things, but the one that he remembered was he was in the house one evening and he looked up at the ceiling and there's this kind of orange, amber-colored, uh, grapefruit-sized orb of light floating up near the ceiling kind of where the ceiling met the met the wall. He said you could see the corner of the, the you know, with the the corner where the, where the ceiling met the wall through it. And he, he kind of went, hey, Paul, what's that? And uh, Benowitz kind of nonchalantly said, oh, you see them too. Yeah, they show up once in a while. And he didn't even seem to care about it. It was just like an everyday occurrence to him. He said, Paul, do you know what these things are? He goes, no, but they, they show up every once in a while. And they and they go away, and I don't know what they are. And I I brought this up with Richard Doty when I interviewed him. I said, uh, did you ever see anything? You know, I tried not to ask leading questions because the way these people are and also just, you know, techniques of interviewing. Um, I said, is there anything going on that you couldn't really explain and you didn't have any idea about, and it kind of leaves you baffled? And the first thing he said was, yeah, those orbs in the house. <laughs> I said, well, what orbs? Uh, he said they're, you know, maybe softball or grapefruit size. And one thing he said is that they had little sparkly, like, sparkles in them. He said, but it was kind of an amber color. He said he saw them when he was in the house checking for stuff when Benowitz wasn't home and his family wasn't home. You know, they'd go in and check over his stuff and see if he had anything incriminating or anything they didn't want him to have, recordings, photographs. Um... And they saw the things there, too. He said he was there with NSA people, uh, and they said, we don't know what it is either. I don't know. So that was one thing. And then something that didn't go in the book, which is exclusive to this show, because I just heard it a couple weeks ago. Awesome. Um, Bill said he was at the house one time at, at Paul, Paul Benowitz's house, and at the whole upper story of the house had been turned into this uh, sort of tracking station and UFO detecting lab that Benowitz had built. Um, and he had all these antennas, uh, things pointed up at the sky towards the base, etc. And as far as I remember, the way Bill told it was he said, they're in the air, they're, they're in the sky over the house right now. And Bill said, who? He said, the, the aliens are there right now. I said, well, how do you know? 
So well, you can see, look, and he showed him some readout on an oscilloscope and said there's a disturbance in the magnetic field or whatever it is. So they're there right now. And he said, and they're scanning you. He said, they're scanning me. He goes, yeah, yeah, I can tell. And he said, and he said I couldn't tell anything. I said, how do you know, Paul? How do you know they're scanning me? He goes, well, there's a spike there in the, in the reading, so I know that they're sending out a scanning beam. And Bill said, well, okay. And he said, if they, if, if they want you to know they're there, they'll scan you again. And he said, oh, yeah? And he said, at that point, he suddenly felt really hot, like a hot flash, and he felt kind of faint. And it lasted a few seconds, and it, then it was gone. Wow. And Paul said, yeah, I guess they did scan you. And Bill said, well, what the hell was that? Because sometimes that happens. <laughs> I wish I had known that when I was doing the book, but he just came up with it a few weeks ago when we were talking about it. Wow. So that, I don't know what that is. I don't know where to put it, what box to put it in. If somebody at a government agency was doing it, if Bennett was doing it himself, or if indeed there was some sort of alien or extraterrestrial or some other force that was doing it that Paul knew about. So there are some aspects to what he was doing that were truly unexplained and, and very strange, and I don't know what to make of them. Bill didn't, and uh, other people I've talked to didn't either. Huh. Uh, so it's not to say everything Benowitz was into was, was total junk and uh, not worthy of some sort of further investigation, if it's that, that's even possible. But um, the main parts of the story, you know, the, the Dulcie base, the uh, exchange of uh, abduction rights for technology, um, an imminent invasion, all these things were basically capitalized upon by the Air Force and other intelligence agencies that had things going on at the base. Now, if you say, now somebody's going to hear that story and say, well, see, there was something going on and he wasn't full of crap. It's like, well, there's so many different parts to this story. You can't say all of it's true because that thing is unexplained or all of it's unexplained. Exactly. You have to take these little, these incidents on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. You know, and uh, like I said, I wish I had known that to put it in the book because it's it's truly unexplained, and somebody may might be able to see that or hear it on your show now can probably hear it on your show and might have some kind of example of uh, something else, that, that something similar to that, or something that might, might lead to some answers to what was going on around Paul's house in Albuquerque there in the 80s. I could have sworn I read that uh, Tesla had orbs like that in his house. Uh, really, I, I've, I've never heard that. I wouldn't be surprising for what he was doing. I mean, he might have had created some sort of plasma. Yeah. So, uh, some sort of uh, plasma balls that, you know, artificial uh, ball lightning, if you if you want to call it something. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe as a result of all the electrical equipment or something. I don't know. Maybe so. Not not entirely inconceivable. Um, during the research, you must have heard about Doty's book, uh, Exempt from Disclosure. Yeah, I got a copy of it. Okay, is that a new book or is that an old book? No, that, that's quite new, and it's not his book. Robert Collins wrote it, and Doty contributed uh, quite a long chapter in it. And oh, so you you're you're familiar with it? You probably read it, right? I read um, probably about three quarters of it. So what? Uh, well, how's that jive with what you know of Doty and um, his what he told you? It goes into slightly more detail about what was going on with him, but. I really don't have any way to prove it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of something specific. Well, he does talk about in the book about being indoctrinated kind of into the Air Force's uh, idea about what UFOs were and 
where they came from and how they were dealing with them. Now, he didn't do that much. He didn't go into that much detail with me on that. In fact, when he was on Art Bell, when I was on there with him, he said he had seen films of the Roswell recovery, and they weren't the Santilli film. Um, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to, whether to believe him or not. He seems to be convinced of that, or dearly wants everybody that hears him to, to believe it. Um, but he goes into a little more detail about that in the book and the, his history in the Air Force and his history of the knowledge of the UFO subject while carefully not revealing what he's not supposed to. He is, in fact, actually going back into the Air Force as of the end of this month. Oh, really? They called him back to be in counterintelligence. He's going to go off to the East Coast somewhere, and I probably won't be able to talk to him, and neither will anybody else. Huh. For a while. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I just found that out, and I'm, I'm desperately trying to get him to um, talk to me for an hour or two so I can put it on my show. Yeah, go for it. So we'll, we'll see what happens. All right, well, let's hit on uh, Falcon, this uh, mysterious character in the book. Um, he never gets a name in the book. Uh, he's fascinating as well. He's a really fascinating character in the book. Um, you must not have been able to find out too much information about him if you could only uh, give him the name Falcon. So was he that mysterious that, that uh, people must have seen him, but they just don't know anything about him? He's, he's that good? I think there's only a couple people I know of that know what his name is. Was he's dead now? Yeah. Um, um, Richard Doty and Bill Moore know know who that guy was. Funny thing was that Bill had to find out by going through different channels because Falcon would not tell him who he was, and I don't know what he referred to him as. I think there was like a he had an alias that he used that Bill would refer to him as. Um, he was called Falcon in the book because that's the name that Jamie Chandray and Bill gave him so that they could talk about all these people on the phone and other places without having anybody know what they were talking about. Um, so I just called him that in the book out of convenience sake. Um, I am probably by the end of this year or sometime in next year, I will have a name. I'm looking into it, and, you know, these people aren't going to tell me who he is. It's that old spy game. You figure out who it is, and we'll tell you you got it. <laughs> yeah. So sometime in the next, you know, year or so, I, I think I'll be able to put a name to it. He's dead now, which doesn't do much, too much good in that regard. But if I can find his name, maybe I can find out where he came from, what he was involved with, and why he was involved with the UFO subject. And at, at this point, I've got the strong suspicion that he didn't really care too much about the UFO subject, except in that how much it could allow him to do his job. And his job was to root out Soviet moles. And, he, and uh, apparently he was good at it. Uh, and specifically Soviet moles, but in general um, security breaches. Because this was during the Cold War and um, this Benowitz thing was just a tiny little part of a, 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 of, of a uh, larger program. And Bill was just a tiny part of the Benowitz thing. And uh, while the Air Force was trying to keep, and the NSA were trying to keep people from revealing what was going on on the base, this guy Falcon was trying, using the UFO groups and the UFO subject to try and find out who was a security risk that was on American soil, specifically from the Soviet Union, because that was the biggest bugaboo back then. Yeah. And when I say bugaboo, I don't mean that it wasn't a threat. I mean, there were people here, there were Russian agents here, and they were 
hanging around military bases. And a lot of these people that were hanging around military bases posed as UFO researchers. They said, well, all we want to know about is the strange lights flying around, but then they'd go over to these military bases and take cameras and start taking pictures. And the Air Force, understandably, didn't like this. They didn't care about UFOs. They wanted to find out what kind of uh, secret aircraft were flying around and then take, send that information or take it back to Russia. So the Air Force, the NSA, CIA, all these people obviously <laughs> didn't want them doing this. So using the UFO subject, um, they were able to root people out. I mean, this happened over and over again. Uh, I cite one example in the book where these, these guys were hired by, um, uh, I think it was Citizens for UFO Secrecy, Peter Gersten and those people, to go and do research on the Cash Landrum case. Um, but they actually turned out to be Soviet spies, and they, they were hanging around the bases asking questions, taking pictures, and saying they were UFO researchers and wanted to find out about this, this, this uh, case, which some people may know about, uh, the, that uh, diamond-shaped thing that irradiated those uh, three people in Texas. Okay, yep. Uh, they were investigating that, but then the FBI and the Air Force found out that they were actually trying to find out uh, more about uh, any kind of secret aircraft programs that were being conducted. And uh, this was what Falcon was interested in. He wanted to find out who in the UFO community was not really who they said they were, not really that interested in UFOs, but more in uh, issues of national defense, under the guise of being UFO researchers. What was uh, like? What was his relationship to Doty? Now, in my mind, uh, I'm picturing he's like the Tommy Lee Jones to Doty's uh, Will Smith. If you uh, for the Men in Black reference, but yeah, yeah, I was think he sort of like the mentor, or were they on an even playing field, or were they just from two different agencies and forced to work together? They were from two different agencies. The AFOSI, Air Force Office Special Investigations, will work with other, other agencies if they have the same goal, which in this case they were. Um, Falcon was basically running the show on this this one of many different investigations and. Uh, projects that AFOSI was in, in, involved in. Uh, AFOSI is basically like you know the police, the, the the FBI for the Air Force. A lot of their stuff has to do with internal matters, security leaks, and all that. Um, and one of these is you know leaks of information to foreign governments. Yeah. So um, Falcon was basically like you know the FBI coming in and directing the sheriff's department of the local whatever um, and u utilizing them in, in their larger investigation. And that would be Jody, the, the local Yeah, Yeah, he was like the local sheriff and, uh, and uh, Falcon had jurisdiction over all security at these, at these bases, so, or at least in that case he did on this project. And uh, he used Doty basically as uh, kind of a, a guide to uh, carry out what he wanted to go on. I don't know if he gave him direct orders, but they worked together and basically was a, much older than and higher in rank, I guess, in the large scheme of things than, than Doty was. So basically he took his orders from Falcon. Doty took his orders from Falcon in this case, for in the Benowitz case. And when you talked to Doty, was he, um, did he begrudge? Falcon to even talk about him much, or was he like happy with how they worked together? I don't know. I think I think Falcon kind of makes him nervous because even now, because when every time I tried to bring him up on the Art Bell show, he changed the subject. 
Oh, really? Yeah, he just didn't want to talk about him. And when I talk to him, he he, he says, if you guess who he is, I'll tell you who he is. I'll tell you you're right. But other than that, he doesn't want to talk about him that much. Huh. And I don't think it's because he's scared of Falcon. I think it's because what they were dealing with at the time, and that subject still is either classified or he thinks it's classified enough that he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. I don't think he's scared of Falcon still or had any grudge against him. It was just what they were, the project they were involved in at the time was, was uh, fairly high up in the secrecy ladder because of the projects that were going on at the base, which I describe in the book. You know, it was tracking Russian satellites, um, high-speed communication uh, through the NSA's project, and uh, other things that I don't even know about. But he was never like, um, you know, uh, I wanted to do it this way, but Falcon said we had to do it that way or anything like that? No, um, I think it was Falcon would say, we need to do this. And he would either tell him, do it this way, or we need to do this, you know, bring me the results. I see. Okay. I mean, the, 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 sometimes he would get orders and sometimes, a lot of times, in fact, I know this from another friend of mine who actually was in the AFOSI years after Doty. Um, I've had him on my show a lot. His name is Walter Bosley, and he, he was a special agent. Basically had the same job that Doty did. So he was able to give me insight into how these these projects were tasked through AFOSI if they needed to be. Like the FBI will come in and say, oh, we got a guy here, um, lives next to the base, has a relationship with Colonel so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, we want to know what the nature of that relationship is. So you come at it from your end, and we'll come at it from our end, and... Uh, but they don't give them any orders. They just say, find out what you can. They're giving a lot of leeway a lot of the time. Special agents with the AFOSI, they're giving a lot of leeway in doing what they want, which is actually some of the reason why a lot of the stuff that Doty did was, was uh, kind of maverick and made his superiors kind of nervous. Huh. Um, the thing, the, that thing with Linda Howe, I think he pretty much ran that show, and he kind of went off the, uh, <laughs> off the page in what he was kind of allowed to do, which is... Um, why it was slightly embarrassing for them. Um, basically, it was just trying to shut shut down that HBO special that she was working on for reasons I've never been able to find out. Um, but uh, he took it a little further than he was supposed to, I guess, by showing her fake documents, etc. What I thought was the funniest part of the book, really made me actually laugh out loud, was um, when Paul Benowitz wrote to the president and he got the letter back that that uh, the form letter about not investigating UFOs. Yeah. And um, meanwhile, he was working with the Air Force. He thought investigating UFOs. Uh -huh. So I thought that was probably the, one of the funniest parts of the book. I really uh, wish I'd been a fly on the wall for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't know. It seems like the standard letter they would send out to anybody that asked about UFOs. Um, the funny thing about all the stuff that was going on at the time is that Richard Doty, uh, Ernest Edwards, other people at the base and the uh, OSI, AFOSI, were um, feeding him all kinds of stories that he was mixing up with what he thought was going on, and then he was starting to write letters, or he had been writing letters to congressmen, senators, the president, everybody, and I think they were getting some of the blowback from this and having to explain what was going on with Paul. All right, and uh, when you were when you started doing the research for this book, wow, was Doty like this impossible to get a hold of guy, as shadow as he, shadowy as he sounds, or how do you how do you go about even getting a hold of him? Because he sounds pretty mysterious. 
uh, Bill Moore was still in touch with him, so I asked him to, to uh, uh, kind of pave the way for me. It took a few months for him to actually get to the point where he'd even answer an email. And when he did answer an email, they were I sent him, I don't know, 20 questions or so, and about half of them came back no comment. Um, and so I got more involved with it with him. And then I told him in an email that I was coming out to New Mexico, so Bill called him up again and said, hey, Greg's coming out. He's not trying to, he's not, you know, trying to make fun of anybody or, you know, doesn't have an agenda really to push, I don't think. So it'd probably be a good idea for you to talk to him. So he said, okay, I'll meet you uh, at a Denny's. So he met, he met me at a Denny's about 40 miles east of Albuquerque. And I had to be there at the, so of course I got there like, you know, 20 minutes early and just hung out and then, it's a weird thing about government people that everyone I've met with, they say, I'm going to be there at three. You set your clock to the atomic clock or whatever, your watch, and at the, at the second it turns three o'clock, they show up. I think they hang around somewhere and wait. So I did the same thing. Um, and I walked up just to see, I said, okay, it's, you know, two minutes to three. I left the, uh, mall where I was, drove across the parking lot and walked into the door, and at the second, at three, you know, four or five, whenever I met him, as I walked in the door, he was walking at the same time. <laughs> and so we sat down and talked. We were. I asked him if I could record it, and he said no. So, and I brought along a map of Kirtland Air Force Base that I had, and uh, we sat down and started to talk, and he stayed with me as long as I wanted to get everything I wanted to get out of him, which turned out to be, I think, over three hours. Oh, wow. And uh, then he gave me his number. Oh, actually, I had his number before because I had to call him when I was in New Mexico. Anyway, and he said, well, call me if you have any other questions. No problem. And uh, that, that's, that's how it went. I had to drive back to Albuquerque, running the entire thing through my mind over and over again. As soon as I got to the hotel, I sat down for about two hours and typed down, typed out probably four or five single-space pages. <laughs> everything I could possibly remember that we'd said. Yeah, that must have been tough to, wow, yeah, three hours and no, no recording. That must have been like. Yeah, I mean, there there was small talk, too, but I try to remember the, you know, important points of what he told me. And then later, of course, I said, you know, this is what I put in the book. Is this how you remember it? And he said, yeah, that's fine. So, I mean, you know, keeping in mind that he told me as much as he needed to tell me or wanted to tell me. But that's fine. I mean, that's all you're going to get. I emphasize in the book that, uh if you're going to play the game with these people, you have to play the game. You can't you can't be scared or thinking they're lying to you all the time because you'll never get anywhere. You have to get what you can out of them and then try and check it. Yeah. Now, what, what was his reaction to you writing a book? Was he, yeah, just what was it? Was he cool about it or was he kind of like cautious? Uh, he didn't seem to have any problem with it. Oh. All right, well, you never know. You know, some people are like, you know, I didn't know if he was, you know, weary of that kind of attention or something like that. No, he he didn't ask me to, you know, I don't even think he asked me to look at what I was going to write. The reason I told him is, is I showed him is because I wanted to make sure that there wasn't something that I quoted wrong or taken out of context or whatever. Yeah. He didn't suggest anything change. He didn't suggest it to, you know, he, he didn't suggest any changes. He didn't say I'd gotten anything wrong. So it was actually pretty smooth going with him. Um as I said, I, there were some things he told me which I knew probably were not true, and then when I 
later I found either I couldn't uh, substantiate them or in a couple of cases Bill said, uh, I know that's not right. I don't know why he said that, but it sounds typical kind of thing that he'll do to people. So he'll give you a few bad roads to go down if you choose to do them just because they sound good. Really? I tried to ignore those. So he just he was doing that on the Art Bell show too, but then of course he was also talking about some stuff that had some validity to it, as far as I could tell. Yeah, that's pretty strange. He just throws out bogus nuggets there, and yeah, so there's people that are big like fans, people that are I guess fans of Richard Doty or that kind of thing, and they tend to believe a lot of the stuff he says, or people that have some sort of agenda, like. Uh, Lear and Cooper and all those people um, back in the 80s that will believe almost anything that comes out of somebody's mouth as long as it sounds good, as long not even good, but sounds sensationalized and is something that the next guy didn't say before so that they'll get the attention, I think. It's like this one-upmanship thing, and uh, government people use that to their advantage. Paul wasn't doing that. He was just to find out, trying to find out things on his own. He wasn't, you know, he didn't want to go appear on radio shows, write a book, or do anything. He thought he was doing something very important that was had to do with the safety of the human race and the planet, etc. But um, no, uh, it, like I said, you have to you have to listen to these people, and you can't just believe everything they say. And then on the other hand, you can't say, well, they lie all the time, so why should believe, why should I believe anything? Uh, that, that's their job. I mean, uh, and if you know what you're talking about, and you know the questions to ask and you know to be patient to check these things out, then you'll get something out of it. If not, you know, you're, you're, if you don't let uh, research and what you think is substantiated truth guide you, then it is kind of useless to talk to these people. All right, now, yesterday we were talking about Bill Moore. Yeah. And uh, I kind of was like, well, let's wait till tomorrow, because I know I'm going to have a ton of questions about him, but just give me a, a subject. What's that? A big subject. Yeah. Well, give me, um, give me like a little thumbnail sketch of, uh, you, in the book you say you kind of, when you first got into like, uh, following ufology, you, you worked with them a little bit, uh, at the MUFON, at the famous MUFON convention at this point. Um, so why don't you tell me first just about how, how you met him and, and you know, that kind of thing. Well, uh, the way I met him was that I was, um, looking for a project, a friend of mine and I were looking for a project to do on video, and I was sort of interested in the UFO subject, again, after many years of not being interested in it, you know, I was like, you know, uh, 10 or 12, I stopped reading all the UFO books, and then around, you know, 21, 22 years old, I started reading them again, and um, at that point, I thought, well, there's going to be a convention here, Bill Moore, Stanton Friedman, other people are going to be speaking there, so why don't we ask if we can just videotape them and then split the split the sales with them? So we got Bill Moore, Stan Friedman, and Bud, Bud Hopkins, of all people, to uh, agree to this. We signed little contracts. I videotaped them, and, the, you know, the tape never sold that well. But, it, uh, uh, you know, as it turned out, that wasn't the point. The point was, a few years later, I started this magazine with a couple friends of mine, um, Robert Larson and Peter Stencil, called The Excluded Middle. And about the third issue along, I, I had been, you know, hanging out with Bill, asking him questions, Basically, just, I don't know, I, I wasn't trying to be his friend. I was just interested in hearing what he had to say, especially after Vegas, because the, the, this that was after Vegas. Um, maybe I should jump back to Las Vegas. Uh, he said he was going to be at the MUFON convention that year, 
and he was going to say something that was going to, you know, blow everybody away and be this incredible thing, and a lot of people would be mad at him, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. So I went to Vegas by myself, met him there, and he had a table set up with stuff, so I, you know, kind of helped him, and, and a couple, actually, he didn't show up at the convention until his talk. So, like, an assistant of his and I just kind of manned the table, you know. I, I did when I kind of had some time and wandered about. And then Bill did his, uh, came up and did his speech, and uh, I'd never seen any any group of people so affected by a talk, like talk. I mean, it, it, there, I, I said in the book, I mean, people, if I'd have known it was going to be that bad, I would have sold rotten vegetables out, out outside before the show, because before the talk, because... The, the, the thing was continually interrupted by people yelling at him and saying, where'd you get that crap from, Bill? And, you know, one guy came, ran out, uh, got up and loudly announced, I'm going to get a fire hose and walk out of the talk. Um, people were crying. It was weird. It was very weird. And so after that, I just thought, well, this is something I'd like to find out what caused all this emotion. So a few years later when I was doing the magazine, I, I had I interviewed Bill, and that was reproduced in a bunch of different places, and um, as the years went on, we just we just hung out because we both live in Los Angeles, and um, became friends that way. And so I would ask him more and more, you know, important, intimate questions about what went on. And uh, when I decided to start writing a book, I th- that was one of the proposals I sent out. You know, there were like three or four of them. And luckily, um, Patrick Wage and Simon and Schuster said. Well, that's the one we want. So I told Bill, "Would you help me with this? Since I, you know, if I if I sign this contract, he said, "Yeah, sure." So it went ahead from that. That that, that was my entry into that, and it was the best place to walk into it, I think. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, how long was his working arrangement with the government? Uh, probably from about that first meeting in 1980, I think early 1980, up to. It kind of petered out in the late 80s, like 88 or so, 86, 88. And and what was the like? What was the um, the agreement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. Well, what was the agreement? The agreement was he would basically answer their questions about who was doing what and thinking what in the UFO community um, to make sure that they didn't have some sort of security leak and didn't have infiltrators in, uh, in the UFO community trying to find out military secrets. And, uh, and in exchange, Bill would get classified UFO information that nobody else was getting. Actually, the first thing they gave him was fake. Not, not the Weitzel letter, but another thing called the Silver Sky document. They handed that to him at the first meeting or second meeting and, and said, why don't you check this out? And so he went and checked it out, and he came back to them, and he said he checked out the names and the dates and all that, and they didn't, they didn't match, and the people didn't exist, or at least they didn't, they didn't live in the places that the document said they did. So he brought it back and said, this is, you know, what'd you give me this for? This is fake. And he says he remembers sitting there and shoving the envelope back across the red tablecloth to them, and he said, Falcon and Doty both smiled and said, good, you passed the test. And what the test was, they would give him stuff, but they didn't want him going out and spouting it all over the place. I don't know why. I think it's because they wanted to make it appear that there was somebody who was doing their homework and was circumspect about things so that whatever they gave to him would have the 
kind of the air of uh, not authority, but at least caution behind it. Yeah, it would be vetted by research. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think Falcon cared whether there was any UFO research being affected or if there was anything, you know, going to be revealed. He revealed as much as he had to through his channels to Bill Moore so that Moore would keep up his end of the bargain. Uh, he, he, in fact, they gave Bill Moore, um, they, they sent him through, like, spy school, essentially. Oh, really? They taught, they taught him how to follow people and how to, you know, how to ask questions and how to get things out of people and uh, do surveillance and all that. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mentioned that in the book and also the fact that they had him do other things besides UFO stuff. They actually had him, you know, try and track down people that were in the L.A. area that they were oh, okay. I remember that. Story. I remember that story now. Yeah, they 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 messed with him a little bit, but they also had him do actual real work. Now, did they tell him that they were trying to uh, weed out uh, foreign spies, or no, they didn't tell him that at the time? But he kind of he kind of put it together after a while. Okay, so at first he he just thought they wanted to know what was going on in ufology. Yeah, and of course he couldn't say anything to anybody about it, so he didn't until. All that had basically blown over, and they weren't using him anymore. And he figured, well, they, he said it in the speech, you know, I was never asked to shut up about it, so I'm going to tell you what happened. And most people read it as, I know something you don't, and you're all full of crap. But the, the thing was, what he was trying to say, and he was a little upset with everybody at that point because he couldn't say what he was doing, and people were saying things, throwing rocks at him, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically. And they had no idea what he was doing and what he had been through because he never said anything about it. So he lost a lot of patience with him, and he said, "You know, I guess I should have—I wouldn't have been so arrogant if I had to do it over again." But um, they, they didn't know what he was doing, so I mean, the reaction was understandable. But the the time that it's taken people to cool off from it, and and a lot of, in a lot of cases, still not listen to what he said is still is kind of amazing to me. Um, although, you know, when you bring up his name, there's a lot less, unless there's people that just have a bone to pick, there's, there's a lot less hostility towards that episode in Bill Moore now. And there were, I couldn't, I don't think I could have written the book in, you know, 1995 or whatever. It, I think now there's been enough time that uh, people will actually listen and, and take things into account. Why do you think that you couldn't have written it in 95, that people... There's too much, too much, well, I could have written it then. I, yeah. Um... The rea okay, the reaction would have been different. There would have been still people around that were, that were still very irritated and upset. Now there's not. I mean, people remember it, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that thing. Not, you know, that asshole Bill Moore. It's more like, oh, yeah, I wonder what really happened with that. And the funny thing is I've talked to a few people who's, who, who I won't mention on the air that said, well, yeah, I knew that all the time. And these were people that were yelling at him at the time. Really? Yeah, so I, it's, you know, it's the... There's a lot of people that are in here, in, I think, in the field to, one, because it's really interesting. I mean, you can't doubt that. But two, because they think they can make some sort of name for themselves doing it. And, you know, yeah, I'm on the show with you, and I went on Art Bell and all that, but it's, it's basically to get the book sold so people will read it and uh, I can write more books. <laughs> and um, the fact that it had to be something that it was, I was involved in, sort, you know, peripherally, personally, and had access to these people just made it a lot more interesting and and uh, enjoyable for me to do. Now, do you think he got anything good out of this agreement, like good information? 
Like, is there anything? No, there's a few things out of it that were good. Um, you know, as, uh, what, the story of the MJ-12 documents, the Eisenhower briefing document, that's a direct result of his agreement with them to watch Paul Benowitz and other people. He got, well, Jamie Chandray got that package in the mail. Now, a lot of people think it's fake now. Even Bill thinks it's fake. But the funny thing is he never said this is absolutely genuine, which everybody claims that he did. And I've read, you know, I've read his articles on the subject all the way back to when he first got it. And, it, you know, it, he, he did say what he said he did. He said, this looks genuine as far as I can tell, but we don't know for sure. And he has a book called The MJ-12 Documents, which he released with everything he'd gotten up to that point, describing what it was, reproducing it, and the research he and Jamie and I think uh, Stanton Friedman had done on the documents, the the, the, the um, Eisenhower document, the Aquarius document, the Kirtland things that came out, uh, and uh, the Carter briefing document, if you've heard of that, went through all these things and said, you know, and examined each one of them individually in detail and pronounced, you know, this seem, you know, he never said this is genuine. He said this seems genuine, this doesn't seem genuine, this is questionable. He is very careful about it, but, you know, because people want things in black and white, they'll say, well, he pushed all this on the UFO community, said it was genuine and knew it was fake. Well, no, he knew that it probably, he didn't know whether they were fake or not, but proceeded to try and figure out if they were. Um, the funny thing is, the upshot of the whole thing, I asked him, I don't know if this is in the book, but uh, I asked Bill, hey, well, what do you think, you know, over the course of, you know, talking to him over many years, and especially the last couple, I said, well, after all this, what, what do you think's going on? And he said, I think there's an alien, there's some sort of extra human presence here, but, but I don't know, and the government knows about it, but beyond that, I don't know what, what they think about it or what they're going to do with it. And I went as far or further than anybody else ever did, and I couldn't figure it out, So, which is why I stopped. You know, he said it, he ran into so many dead ends on it that he just said, you know, either it doesn't exist or there's somebody that's very high up that really doesn't want us to mess with it, you know, get to the center of it. And he just stopped investigating altogether uh, after... Yeah, he, he, he's written a book on the, you know, origins of the Mormon church. That's what he's been doing for the last eight or ten years. It just came out. When, now, was that, did he uh, stop investigating, like, right after that Mopon convention, or, or like... Oh, no, he kept down, going but... for a while. Probably somewhere in the mid to late 90s, he finally gave up on it. Because it, 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 he couldn't get it. He said, I just couldn't get it. Jacques Vallée said exactly the same thing, in so many words. When I asked him about it, I said, well, why don't you, uh, I saw him a couple of years ago somewhere, and I, you know, I have an incredible amount of respect for him, so I just said, you know, why don't you... Uh, why, why aren't you involved in the UFO subject anymore? He says, because I'm not learning anything from it. At some point, a lot of these people get to the point where they've been running around in circles for years and had a few stabs at, at maybe what an answer is or whatever, but it never gets them anywhere. They, 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 they know a little bit more than they did, but not so much that it's going to change anything, and especially their own personal views. You know, that they come out, that most of them come up with exactly the build it. There's something here, some people in power know about it, but past that, I don't know what they're, what's at the center of that. Um, going back to Bill Moore, uh, at what point during the saga did he decide to, uh, you know, reveal 
all to uh, the ufology field. Like, he, he obviously, he must have been getting either fed up or it wasn't worth it anymore. Or at, what, at what point was he, like, decide to make this big revelation? Um, probably about a year or so before he did it. I, I, I don't know. He didn't really talk about it until right before the, uh, the convention there in 1989. So I don't know when he made the decision. Probably, you know, I, if you're talking about a time frame when he might have said, okay, that's it, you know. Well, you know, what do you mean, the decision to give up or the decision to make the, the announcement? Oh, the, announcement, the decision to make the announcement. Oh, it, it, because he was getting nothing more from the, by the late 80s there, he was getting nothing, mid to late 80s, he wasn't getting anything else from his contacts anymore. Um, they had stopped asking him for information and they had stopped giving it to him, so he figured that their, their little, there was no time frame on it, but he figured their agreement was basically finished. So he, um, he said, well, I've got nothing to lose. Maybe if I put this out in the community, something will come back that's useful and um, we can learn something. But all he got was a bunch of people mad at him. And maybe two or three or few people um, pretty soon after saying, I think what you said was interesting and uh, I'd like to help you. But none of that really panned out. And because maybe he did get further than anybody else at that point. It sounds it sounds like he, yeah, well, it's, it's really a fascinating. You don't hear uh, that, that too many ufologists that uh, that openly admit that sort of thing, that, they, that they're in contact with the government and they work with them. No, there were a few other people, and Bill says he knew about them and he knew who they were, but it's not his business to reveal who they are. That's their business, because they're still alive, all of them, apparently. Yeah, I know. That was a fascinating, that was like a, one of those things you look and you end up thinking about it for a while after you read something like that, because you're like, I wonder who that could be. Yeah. It doesn't mean that their contributions are any less um, valuable, I think. Oh, no. I mean... It just means that if you're dealing with them on a personal level, then if they tell you, hey, I heard that so-and-so, then you're probably, you should probably check out what they say. Well, you should do that with anybody. But, um, well, actually, which would make it no different. <laughs> you hear something sensational and you think, well, this would be great to announce, which a lot of people go right out and announce it without even checking on it. Um, but uh, some people say, well, let me check this out. And sometimes it'll take years for you to check out something somebody told you. There's a bunch of stuff I've been told that I'll... I'll probably never know if it's true or not. Well, with, with somebody like Moore, uh, he, the reason I think he was the most interesting guy in the book, too, is uh, it, it's really, I couldn't find myself identifying with Benowitz, and I definitely couldn't I, identify with Doty, but, but I can really, uh, I can really, you can really see, uh, put yourself in Bill Moore's shoes, and it makes, I think it makes perfect sense what he did. I don't really have a problem with it, you know, only because this is a, it's sort of an individual quest for, for, for knowledge at times. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of took the, he never really was, you know, played well with others unless they had something that either he needed or something that was interesting. I mean, that's basically how you choose friends. I mean, you know, if you're smart, you don't hang around with people that are useless and, and take your time and, and, and effort and all that and give nothing back. Um, and that's exactly how he is, but he's a, he's a lot less, you know, he's a lot less uh, transparent about it. I mean, uh, he, he's, uh, what am I saying? He, he, he's more transparent about it. He'll just say, well, I have nothing to gain from you, so, <laughs> you know, have fun. <laughs> I went to lunch with him and this, uh, this uh, pro radio producer a few, about a month ago, and the guy's saying, oh, I finally get to meet Bill Moore, you know, the Bill Moore. And he, as time went on, 
he wasn't getting the answers he wanted. He wasn't hearing what he wanted from Bill Moore, and Bill was ac actually questioning this guy's basic beliefs, like, well, why do you think that? Why do you think the government's about to reveal a bunch of uh, stuff? Well, because so-and-so told me, and, you know, he said, well, you know, how do you trust that person? He just started questioning the guy about where his belief system came from. The guy got a little irritated, and after that, he didn't want to talk to Bill anymore. And before that, he was all excited to talk to him and, you know, possibly strike up some sort of relationship. But Bill was like, you know, if, if you're going to persist in your, your delusions or at least not support yourself, um, I'm not learning anything from you, so, what, you know, why should I continue this conversation? He was polite. He was polite, you know, he was a gentleman about it, but he was, you know, very firmly like, you know, if you're, if you can't support what you say, then, then we have nothing to talk about, unless you just want to listen to me. Um, oh, and, 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 and discuss that and question my belief system, because he's, he's fine with that too. A few times we almost got in our, you know, kind of arguments when I was working on the book, because I, you know, it's like, why did you do that? Didn't you have a problem with that? You know, why didn't you, you know, didn't you care people don't trust you anymore? Just things like that. And instead of getting mad, he would just, you know, kind of grit his teeth and say, you know, and tell me exactly why he did what he did. Well, that's commendable that at least, you know, it sounds like he has a strong character, so. Yeah, very strong. I mean, it, it, he makes you realize that you, you, a lot of your opinions are based on, you know, an emotion and very little else. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um. Now, before he made the big revelation to ufology that he was working with the government, were there any rumors of it, um, or was? Oh it yeah, it was all over the place. People were already yelling at him. Really? How long? How long was that going on before he was like, "Well, I might as well come clean about this"? Oh, probably a year or two. I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I was just vaguely aware of what was going on at the time, just because you know my only inroad to that was Bill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there wasn't an Internet then, and I just had to hear from people what they were saying. And when I got to the convention, I realized how, how you know, suspicious people were of him at that point. Because he, like, why does Bill get all these documents? Who mails these things to him? What, what's he doing here? Is he an agent that's just trying to spread, you know, disinformation? The funny thing is they take some of the disinformation and repeat it. Yeah. Um, if, if they thought it, you know, it... it uh, not specifically from Bill, but um, from the same people that were talking to Bill, although they didn't know it, uh, I think in a few cases. Uh, the same milieu of uh, intelligence people would say something, and they just run with it immediately. They didn't go check it out. They said, you know, aliens are living underground, and, you know, Edward Teller is running, a, running an alien, uh, f f uh, 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 is testing an alien defense system, and blah, blah, blah. They didn't go and, you know, they didn't wait and say, you know, either go to see Edward Teller or talk to somebody that was involved with him or check up on it. They would just immediately stand up on the podium with, a, you know, sometimes with a bunch of security guards around to make it look like something bad was going to happen and, and repeat all these paranoid stories that had been told to Paul Benowitz, had been, had been uh, concocted, not, not purposely, by Paul Benowitz and the people around him. And... Uh, the scene when he uh, when he makes this revelation that you were there must have been just uh, people just keep shouting at him and everything. I really wish like I wish there was a video of it. I have heard and talked to somebody that says he has a video of it. And I'm still trying to get it from him. 
because he said he taped it for the convention, but more did not allow it to be released anywhere, but he still has it. I said, well, this guy lives in Utah, I think, in uh, around Moab or something. I said, well, where's, do you know where the tape is? Oh, it's in my garage somewhere. I said, could you please find it? But um, I haven't bugged him in a few months here. I should start bugging him again. And somebody else I talked to recently said they had an audio tape of it. Phil Klaff has a tape of it because he was in the front row taping it with a little microcassette recorder. Oh, man. <laughs> I remember seeing it. Every lecture, he'd sit in the front row with a tape recorder and record everything. Wow. I don't know why they allowed him to do that and nobody else, but apparently he was doing it. You've been in ufology for a long time, would you say? You've at least followed it, right? Since uh, you would say followed it. I mean, I don't know if I'm in ufology, but it, it's very interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of the same way I am, so yeah. Um, well, ufology, ufology, uh, you study the days of Benowitz and everything. How do you think it's evolved um, since then to today's, uh, you know, present-day ufology? Has it improved? Has it what the elephant in the living room uh, thing about ufology is, is September 11th. Really? You notice that after that you didn't hear anything about UFOs or ufology for like two or three years? Nobody cared about it. Uh, and MUFON, a lot of UFO uh, uh, organizations just hit, you know, they, they went out of existence then. MUFON just barely held on. And now they're, you know, making a little bit of a comeback. Because nobody cared about UFOs then. They were worried about whether they were going to get bombed, you know? Yeah, uh, I've never thought of it that way, but, yeah, that's really uh, that's an excellent point. It, uh, it basically shut everybody, you know, and, uh, people just didn't care about it because they were so riveted by this other thing that was very much important, very important to a lot of people and, uh, to you know, to... The, the way we thought of ourselves and our identity and how vulnerable we thought we were. And, you know, it's it's hard to look out the window and wonder if somebody was going to crash a plane in a building outside. Because I lived near downtown L.A. at the time. I'd look out the window every day and just wonder. And I didn't care about UFOs too much at that point either. But I was in the middle of writing the book, so I, just, you know, or I was uh, trying, to, trying to sell the book as, a, uh, as an idea. So, you know, that's, it just kept my interest. But the... Ufology, I think, took a big nosedive then, and it's just, you know, in the last couple of years starting to recover. And I think it's changed. It's People are a lot less, um, at least people that are really into the subject, are a lot less likely to uh, just take anything at face value. I mean, I, people like Sean Morton and Michael Sala and people like that aside, I think people are at least serious, people that are serious about it are much more circumspect about what they're going to allow into their belief system. I think that's a direct result of that. And people that were just sort of interested in it, you know, now probably either don't care or, or it's just, you know, marginal to their interest. Um, so is, is that because of 9-11, you think? I think it is. I mean, it, it means you realize that the UFOs are just, it, it's, it's, the study of UFOs, I, I, my view of it is, it's kind of like an interesting. It's like it's like an interesting intellectual exercise, unless you've actually been abducted or something like that. That's yeah. completely different, um, or actually seen something, which I never have. Not but to, you know, ninety-nine point nine percent of the population, it's just you know, it's just a fun thing. It's it's in there with with ghosts and and uh, Bigfoot and all that other stuff, which we can go into how it's all connected anyway, which is part of a magazine. Uh, the idea of the magazine. But to most people, it's not that interesting. 
and and to the people who are interested in it, it's uh, I think they've become a lot more circumspect about it. And uh, one example is the National UFO Conference that uh, that has been going on. It's the longest running UFO conference I think in the might be in the world. But in the last couple of years, they've started presenting things that um, are fairly serious, pretty well grounded, and um, seem to point in, you know, in a direction of trying to find answers through the data, rather than just coming, having somebody come in and and uh, give you a, a laundry list of sightings, which is what used to happen at a lot of UFO conferences, or there'd be, you know, one case that was very interesting, but really didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was like would kind of stand on their own, I think. But it, it, I think it's changed for the better because, like I said, people are are uh, a lot more careful about what they say um, and who they who, who they might want to believe. At least that, that's my impression. That, that thing, the Rex Heflin photo thing that I talked about earlier, that was presented last year at the National UFO Conference. That was the most you know that was the most interesting thing I'd seen in years at a UFO conference. Huh. Because it dealt with, you know, hard data with 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 an actual witness that was still alive and and photographs that backed up what he said. I don't know where that leaves us, but it all it it lets us know that it's not just you know it's something you can show to somebody and say, look, it wasn't something somebody imagined. There was something there. It was photographed and it left a you know left a physical trace. So it's not the imagination, and it's not. Um, you know, it's not some ghost or something. It's it's some physical thing that was there, at least at you know that point for that witness. So you think this is, there's been an evolution uh, past uh, lights in the sky and what I've witnessed from my Jack, own. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, and from what I witnessed just from my own research and everything and observation of the field is that there seems to have, seems to be an evolution toward uh, like a disclosure movement. I don't really. Um, that's probably the best way to put it. And that's yeah, that's been building for a long time. And uh, I was on a show a couple of months ago out here in L.A., and uh, the producer there seemed absolutely convinced that there was going to be, based on, you know, on different things, including that uh, recent thing in Brazil where the, uh, where the government, the Air Force there, is actually opening up their files to UFO researchers, which I think is great. Um, I don't know what else has come out since that. Uh, yeah. They haven't done a report on it yet. But he seemed to be convinced that for some reason in the next few months there was going to be this big disclosure and every, everything was going to be revealed. And then he said, uh, I was on the show, they said, what do you think of that? Don't you think it's a wonderful development? And I said, I'll believe it when I see it. Exactly. You know how many times people have said this? It's been said in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, a few times each, and nothing happens. Why do you think it's going to be different this time? Well, do you think it'll ever happen? I don't know. I think it will happen, but it's not going to be in the way that people want to, or can, or maybe in a great part, most people can understand or or put together in some kind of coherent idea. I think it's just you know important things are leaked out, and you just have to keep your keep your nose to the grindstone and and pull these things up and see how over years and years and see how well they fit together. Um, there, there's a few people. I think Grant Cameron's doing that, and he's doing a pretty good job of it. That, that that kind of thing, where he's he's got um, his site's called presidentialufo.com. Um, he just sits on things for years, and if there's something he thinks is important that matches up with something that's happened in the past, he will say, "Well, look, you know, 
here Jimmy Carter said so-and-so in 1978, and now, you know, and then Reagan said so-and-so, and, um, and then this case happened in Nevada that seems to, you know, I, I, I can't think of a specific. Yeah. But that, that kind of research, that kind of disclosure, where something slips every once in a while, I think that is where the gold in the, in the information will lie. And, and, and beyond that, I think that the U.S. government, I think it, it, it's very unpopular to say, but I don't think they know much more than we do. I think they know, okay, they know more than we do, but they have no idea what to do with it. Yeah, they don't know as much as, as the popular uh, misconception might be. Yeah, I mean, it's that John Keel, the, the, the joke he made years ago. <laughs> the, 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 UFO, the UFO community is not telling the, telling the Air Force what it knows about UFOs. <laughs> you know, it was a joke at the time, but it seems to make more sense as, as time goes on. And I think a lot of civilian researchers might be ahead of the government in, in what they're doing, which is why the, another reason why the government, government agencies are so interested in the subject. Because they're going to get information from sources that they, they had no idea how. You know, they, they had no idea how to go about it. Yeah. That might, I think that's the other reason that the government's always been interested in the civilian UFO community is that they're finding stuff out that they didn't know. So, yeah, they know, they know probably, you know, at least a little more and maybe more than that than, than the general public. But as far as how to use that, um, they only know how to use it to, you know, to, to solidify their power base, which is what they do anyway. Yeah. You know, we're, we, we're going to make you think we know a lot more than we do just to scare you and, and uh, keep you in line. That, that's, you know, that, that's, that's old. That, that, that's as old as man. I mean, it's, yeah. these are ideas that came I use the example of uh, the art of war that, by the Chinese general from, like, you know, 500 B.C. or something like that. You use what you know, even if you don't know too much, to keep other people on their toes or off balance or whatever. And I, th I think that's how they use you. And to us, it makes it look like they know everything and they're not telling us. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. That's an unpopular point of view, but as far as I can tell, I think that's what's happening. It's a, yeah, it makes, it makes sense. I mean, it makes more sense than that, 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 that they're sitting on a whole bunch of information that they can really keep secret. Yeah. I mean, if it was that important, I don't know how secret they could keep it. Yeah. You know, and, so, and for, for the first thing out of a ufologist's mouth is, well, the, the aliens don't want to tell us either because they're, they're scared of the whole deal. But if they've got that much power, I think they could, like Whitley Strieber says, I think they're revealing things to us just from the bottom up. They're, 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 they got tired. If they're around here and there's a separate, you know, there are aliens wherever they come from, um, I think they're, they're going to reveal things from the bottom up. Not, not, they're not going to tell everybody at the top because they know that whatever they say is going to be garbled so much by the time it gets to us, it's just going to be, have, have no relationship to what they're trying to tell us. Yeah. And that, it's, and that presence has been around, you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So, like, a lot of people think that the disclosure might happen, but it'll be on their terms. That uh, what? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah Exactly. It'll be on their terms, and it'll be the way they want it to happen. And um, maybe abductions are part of that. I don't know. Maybe that stuff going on in Mexico is part of that. I don't know. Who knows? So, you know, even if the government revealed what it knows, I don't think we'd really know much. Even? We'd probably know what Roswell was, and we'd probably know, you know, what that thing was flying over Texas that irradiated those people, which I've got a pretty good idea what it is, um, et cetera. So... It's uh, it, people are looking for answers from from a place I don't think they're going to come from.
Yeah, and in light of uh, your book, um, at least I know the ufology community, sir, probably wouldn't believe uh, a government, official government disclosure anyway. I think there would be a lot of people... Uh, you know what they believe? They believe what they expect. And that's the problem with it. They expect to hear that it's aliens from another planet, they're abducting us, and um, they're all powerful, and they come in, you know, saucer-shaped flying things, and they've been doing it since Kenneth Arnold. That's what everybody expects and wants to hear. Now, something else, if, you know, whatever, whatever it is, I don't think people could get their minds around it. I don't think I could. Because we don't, we, I don't think we can think in the way that it actually is, if there actually is an is associated with it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's just we're trapped in linear time-space relationship that we've been taught and is reinforced by our senses and the way we live and the way science has been since I don't know how long. And... Um, if we are presented with, it's like the, it's like sighting, it's like that uh, Oz factor. People will see something weird. There'll be something in the sky or something in the room next to them. There'll be, you know, two or three people will see something. Wow, multiple witnesses. They'll they'll wake up in the morning. They'll go. They'll either won't talk about it. Or they'll go, wow, what was that? And then 20 years later, after nobody said a word about it, somebody says, remember that time? Well, we were in the kitchen, and all the lights went out, and, you know, and they haven't thought about it for 20 years at all. And somebody just suddenly says, oh, yeah, and, you know, it was like, oh, the aliens did something to them and made them forget. But what I think it is, and this is an idea from Dean Radin, who I interviewed, is that your mind doesn't have a box to put it in. Yeah. You don't have a category for it, mm -hmm. for whatever it was that happened, because your your senses are... Your senses are trying to make sense of it in a, you know, A to B, 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, moving from this place to this place sense, and it, it, it's not that kind of sense. It's, it's not that kind of experience. You're, 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 the way you've been taught to look at things and experience things is not the way that they actually happened. It's, I'm, I'm using a lot of loaded terms here. Yeah, but I think, I think it's... I think it's yeah, but it's a hard, it's, a, it's an ephemeral concept, really, to grasp. And and you know, and then now put that in, a, in the context of somebody coming on the news and announcing, well, time is an illusion. Time is is an illusion. Things don't work the way you think they do, and um, that's where these entities live and how they interact with us. People are going to go, ha, huh, what? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm you know I I'm not saying that's what would happen, but. Uh, just as an example, there's no way to explain it in, in, in the terms that we have in our language and the way we think. That's, that's what I think is going on. So it just stays in this little box somewhere that we can't put it in, and then little bits of it come out that make sense to us. Flying saucers, aliens with big eyes, um, uh, traces on the ground, uh, you know, jets chasing something. That makes sense to us. Yeah. But, you know, something that happened in the no space and the no time, um, starting to sound like a drug addict or something. <laughs> Somebody is taking too many psychedelics, which I'm sure, I assure you I'm not. But it, it, there, there's no way to describe that. So if you're going to disclose something you can't describe, how can you do it? <laughs> yeah. There you have it. That was this week's edition of Been All of America Audio Season 1. I want to thank Greg Bishop for sitting down and talking to me for so long and, uh, we're going to continue this conversation next week with part two of two, the Greg Bishop interview, discussing Project Beta, ufology, and a host of other stuff. For those of you who didn't catch it, his website is 
www.excludedmiddle.com. That's E X C L U D E D M I D D L E.com. And of course, my website is binallofamerica.com. www.binallofamerica.com. Big thanks to Leslie and Chiron of binallofamerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. And of course, thank you, everyone out there listening. Hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Been All of America Audio Season 1, and I hope you stop by again next week for more madness from Been All of America. Until next week, this is Tim Benall saying so long, everybody. <laughs>